0: Uh, tonight at 6 o'clock there will be a faculty roundtable discussion here in the gym where some members of our faculty will be uh, kind of leading us in a reflection on uh, ways to think Christianly uh, about the events of the last uh, 36 hours or so. Uh, I was uh, involved in just a, kind of a give and take session yesterday with a number of our faculty and I was uh, very encouraged and um, I think you will be too if you can uh, come out tonight at 6 as opposed to 7, which we uh, initially announced it to be. Tomorrow night at 6.30 p.m. on the Kerwood lawn, uh, WCSA and Christian Concerns will uh, gather to have a service of memorial, a memorial service for the victims uh, of the uh, the attack on the World Trade Center in the Pentagon. And uh, we know uh, we are in no way accepted, uh, EXCPT, uh from the... Uh, suffering the world, we recognize our solidarity with these uh, these people we don't even know, at least for most of us, but um, it's a time to gather and to have a service, a memorial service on the Kerwood Lawn at 6.30 tomorrow. The story you're about to hear is one of the great short stories in all of literature. It takes place just, uh, well, the third day after the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, the darkest moment in history, and uh, it's a wonderful story. As Luke tells it in Luke chapter 24, beginning with verse 13, that same day, two men were walking to the village of Emmaus, seven miles out of Jerusalem. As they walked, they were, they were talking about all the things that had happened. Suddenly, Jesus came along and joined them and began walking beside them, but they didn't know who he was, because God had kept them from recognizing him. You seem to be in a deep discussion about something, he said. What are you so concerned about? They stopped short. Sadness written across their faces. Then one of them, Cleopas, replied, You must be the only person in Jerusalem who hasn't heard about everything that's happened there the last few days. What things? Jesus asked. The things that happened to Jesus, the man from Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet who did wonderful miracles. He was a mighty teacher highly regarded by both God and all the people, but our leading priests and other religious leaders arrested him and handed him over to be condemned to death, and then they crucified him. We had thought he was the Messiah who had come to rescue Israel. All this happened three days ago. And then... Some women from our group of his followers were at his tomb early this morning and they came back with an amazing report. They said his body was missing and that they had seen angels who told them that Jesus is alive. Some of our men ran out to see. And sure enough, Jesus' body was gone, just as the women had said. You are such foolish people, Jesus said to them. You find it so hard to believe all the prophets wrote in the scriptures. Wasn't it clearly predicted by the prophets that the Messiah would have to suffer all these things before entering his time of glory? And then Jesus quoted passages from the writings of Moses and all the prophets explaining what all the scriptures had said about himself. By this time, they were entering Emmaus and the end of their journey, and Jesus would have gone on, but they begged him to stay the night since it was getting late. So he went home with them. As they sat down to eat, he took a small loaf of bread, asked God's blessing on it, broke it, then gave it to them. Suddenly, their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And at that moment, he disappeared. And they said to each other, didn't our hearts feel strangely warmed as he talked with us on the road and explained the scriptures to us? The Word of God. There are so many reasons why this story is so great. There's the uh, mystery and wonder of what seems to be a chance meeting with a stranger and what turns out to be an epiphany, a a transforming revelation with one who turns out to be a friend. I was meditating on this passage in the uh, Los Angeles International Airport a few weeks ago. Loretta, my wife, had walked away and I was sitting among strangers. And as I meditated on this scripture and I looked around at the people sitting next to me and Thought of my father. Dad's been gone now for 31 years. I still miss him. There were things we said to each other just before he died that I wish we hadn't said. There's there's stuff still there. And I thought, what would it be like if, as I was sitting there. This, this man sitting next to me started talking to me and, and then unaccountably would, would say things to me that would make it clear that, that it was okay, that things were fine. And I'd, I'd, I'd be warmed inside. And, and then he'd get up to catch his plane and I, I'd follow him just a bit. And as he went down the ramp, he turned around it was dead. Wow. Maybe gone. That's the story. Or maybe, maybe you're digging through the rubble of the World Trade Center. You're a fireman. You've been up 24 hours, and some of your buddies are gone. And a stranger walks up and starts talking. And suddenly everything's different. And and you look at him and you realize he's one of your friends. But he's gone. This is a great story because of the mystery and the the wonder of, of what seems to be just random. And then suddenly it's so obviously... God, there's a joy of seeing the worst that could happen turn out to be the very best. But what so touches me is a miracle of how Jesus makes sense of these men's lives. How does he do it? Well, two ways. He first asks them to tell them or tell him their story. I love the gentle humor and irony in all this. He says, you seem to be uh, in a deep discussion about something as though he didn't know. What are you so concerned about? He's saying, in effect, tell me your story. And this is the kind of thing that Jesus does all the time. He he says, your life is a story and you won't know what your life means until you pay attention to the plot line. Tell me one more time what's got you so upset of course, they don't know how, how significant it's going to be to tell Jesus the story. They've been telling their story to each other all along. But now they're telling it to Jesus, and that's everything. He says, tell me your story. Pay attention to the plot line. Let me hear it from you. You're not going to get it unless you tell me. In the extreme, you'll be like the man in the perplexing. And I think, brilliant film, Mento... He's so confused about who he is, his sense of identity is so tenuous that he carries little clues in his pockets, little Polaroid snapshots. He tattoos what little grasp he has on himself to his body. And some of us live our lives kind of that way. And when he asks them to tell their story, he says, or they say, you, you have to be the only person alive who hasn't heard what's been going on. What things? Ask Jesus. And again, the irony and the humor. Well, the things about Jesus, the man from Nazareth, they're telling Jesus the things about Jesus. But they're telling it, and that's the thing. Jesus is saying, your life is a story, and I really am interested in it. Now, stay with this. As I quote Psalm 139 verses 15 and 16. David writing about his relationship to his creator. He says, You watched me as I was being formed in utter seclusion and as I was being woven together in the dark of the womb. You saw me before I was born. Every day of my life was recorded in your book. Every moment was laid out before a single day had passed. Every day of my life was written in your book before I lived it. And now Jesus comes along and says, I love this. Read to me from the book that I wrote. The prophet Jeremiah in the face of horrific, horrific disaster. Rise during the night and cry out. Pour out your hearts like water before the Lord. Lift your hands to Him in prayer. Now, I'm a pastor, and I counsel sometimes. I don't know if I'm any good at it. I just I just want to represent Jesus, and I think the best thing I can ever do with anybody, if you come to see me someday, the best thing, let me tell you ahead of time, what I think is the best thing I could ever do is you tell me your story. If somehow, by the power of the Holy Spirit, as you read the book of your life to me in the presence of Jesus, that you would begin to see His grace has been there all along. That He would give you eyes to see what you haven't been able to see up to that point. That you would see His presence Your life is a story. It really matters to him. He wrote it. Tell him. And you'll need to live that life. You'll need to live the questions of your life before his answers will make any sense. One of my favorite novels is Love in the Ruins by Walker Percy. Um, We kind of pass books around in our family and... uh, and Andy and I had read it, and uh, Dan wanted to read it, and he made that known one night. And, and Andy and I looked at each other and said, that book's got the greatest ending. I know. And we opened it up and started to read it. Of Dan shouted, stop, <laughs> stop, stop. Because if you read that ending, well, number one, I won't get the ending because I don't know the story. And you'll ruin the story by giving me the ending. You have to live the story before the ending it can be great. Or to switch the metaphor, uh, Soren Kierkegaard talks about a bunch of schoolboys, I imagine them to be junior hires, uh, sneaking into their math teacher's office and stealing the answers to the math test before the test is given. They, they They memorize the answers in order. They take the test. They get an A on the test and an F in math. And some of us are very young. We have a lot of very good answers, true answers. We know the end of the story. But hear me you have to live the story. You have to live the questions before the answers are all that they can be. So Jesus says, Tell me the story. You know, the best advice I ever got on the Christian life is a man who told me once, Ben, if you're dry, if you're depressed, if you're angry, if you're confused, don't talk to others about it more than you talk to Jesus about it. You wake up in the morning, you don't feel like praying, say, Jesus, I don't feel like praying. Here's why. I can't see you, I can't feel you, you've not, said, you've not written, you've not said a thing in days, I'm getting sick of this. Make the barrier a bridge by telling Jesus about it, not just a friend or a professor or a chaplain. That's how Jesus makes sense out of our lives. He, he says, tell me your story. I know it, but something amazing happens when we tell him the story. It's beautiful to watch. Jesus begins to make sense of their lives by asking them to tell their story, but it doesn't stop there. He then tells them his story. And it starts with a rebuke. Have you ever noticed how how really nasty this is of Jesus to say what he says? I mean, they've not been to a little disappointment. They've had their, their, their hopes and their dreams just kind of fall apart. And after they lay it all out, he says, not, you know, like, gosh, I really hear you. Boy, I, you, know, you must feel very disappointed. He says, you are such foolish people. You find it so hard to believe all the prophets wrote. In the scriptures wasn't it clearly predicted by the prophets that the Messiah would have to suffer all these things before entering his time of glory the root of your problem of all of your problems is that you don't know God's story and your ignorance of God's story is directly proportionate to your ignorance of Scripture isn't this interesting That at the very moment when it would seem they just need a good ear, they get a strong lecture on the importance of Scripture. How important is Scripture to Jesus? Well, how did He fight His hunger, His desolation? How did He fight His emptiness in the wilderness? with Scripture. if you're the Son of God, turn these stones into bread. The Word of God says, people live not by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Hey, you're the Son of God? Jump off the temple. I mean, the Bible says that the angels will catch you before you hit the ground, and Jesus says, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. I'll give you everything. I mean, you're hungry. You want to save the world? I'll give you the world to save. And Jesus Jesus says, I'm not going to worship you. There's only one person to worship. That's God. How important is Scripture to Jesus? In His desolation, what does He say on the cross? He starts quoting a psalm. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? In a controversy with theologians, he dismisses their point of view by simply saying, You are in error because you don't know the scriptures or the power of God. Matthew twenty two, twenty nine. Or John five thirty nine. You search the scriptures because you think you're going to find life in them. Well, these scriptures are about me. And scripture cannot be broken. Jesus traces their desolation and confusion directly back to their ignorance of the Word of God. You know, there are three kinds of ignorance, it seems to me. There is the ignorance of literacy, some of us just don't know what's in the book. But there are other kinds of ignorance. There's the ignorance of uh, objective inquiry, of detached knowledge of the Bible, of sort of, well, as Frederick Buechner puts it, to read the Bible as literature is like reading the Brothers Karamazov for the punctuation. Or Moby Dick as a wailing manual. It's that kind of, well, we'll just kind of look at this book. It's an interesting book, isn't it? Well, the book says about itself, it says it's a mirror James chapter 1. And to read this book and not see what's in the mirror is to forget why you're supposed to be reading it in the first place. That's a kind of insidious ignorance, isn't it? You might you might not be illiterate when it comes to the Bible, but we may be so doctrinally pristine that we don't see ourselves anymore. And there's the ignorance of myopia. We can only see a few details. We have a few verses, a few proof texts. We glom onto to them, but we can't see the forest because all we see is a couple of trees. So what did Jesus do? I just think this is absolutely amazing. It says he started quoting from the writings of Moses and all the prophets explaining what all the scriptures had to say about himself. Now, let me tell you what I think he didn't do. I don't think he said, now turn back to this verse and this verse and this verse and you'll get the predictions down. No. I think Jesus did what anyone who has had a deep, and thorough and spirit-enlightened reading of the Bible can do. Have you met people like this? Do you know people like this? They, they've got it all. I mean, they don't have all the details, but they know what it's about. From the beginning to the end, it's about God's purposes for His people. It's about God wanting to make, make us a little lower than Himself and to give us authority over creation. It's about how we blew it and how we dropped the ball and how, how sin and death came into the picture. It's about how God saved the people by death, by the, by the blood of a lamb. It's about how people forget it over and over and over again and how God stays with them and how throughout the whole story they're suffering and suffering and suffering and it's finally by suffering. that he saves us. Now you don't get that. If you got a verse here and a verse there. No. You read the Bible for all it's worth. You know, I think some of us, and certainly part of my life, I I treated the Bible like Tabasco sauce. Um, I like Tabasco sauce, so don't think that's bad. I've been known to carry a bottle with me in my pocket to uh, liven up food. Tabasco sauce makes backpacking food taste good. You know, it's just a And I've treated the Bible that way. Just uh, something to kind of liven up my life. Here's how I think the Bible ought to be used. It ought to be used like marinade. We eat a lot of meat in our house and we always get the bargains. Some of the bargains aren't such great bargains because the meat's kind of tough and not very tasty. But you want to make a good piece of meat, really good, just slather it with mesquite marinade. Make it sit there for for a day until that stuff just gets in that meat and transforms it. That's how the Bible ought to be to us. Not... Like a little spice, but something that tough pieces of meat, like us, can soak in and be transformed by. That's one picture. Let me give you another one. Uh, the man's probably dead by now. His name is Carl Smith. He, when I, when I met him 15 years ago, well, he was in his late 80s. And he was a guide at Tuolumne Meadows in Yosemite. He had been there for decades. And he was an amazing man because he was so familiar with the woods around Tuolumne Meadows. He knew every plant, every every tree. He knew it so well that, when, in fact, he told us when he was a young man, he would go out and he would get so familiar with the trees that he would, he would blindfold himself and go out at night. And simply by touch and by smell, he could tell you exactly what the plant was and the tree. Now, imagine us. We're on a little tour of Tuolumne Meadows walking through the woods with our little nature books. <laughs> and there you have it again, the difference between Tabasco and marinade. We had our little books and we're trying to identify the mysteries. And we're walking with a man who knew them intimately. That's how we should know the scriptures. That's Why Jesus chided these men and he chides us because you see our stories don't make any sense until they fit in and we see how they fit in with the big story. I mean the the meaning of life, its depth, its significance, the, the meaning of evil in the world. How can we possibly live our lives in this world? unless we know the big story. Well, I want to close with a story from CS Lewis's children's story, The Horse and His Boy. Shasta is on a kind of a run-down horse and he's lived a very hard life. He's been an orphan, he's been chased by lions and wolves. He's been chased by his enemies, he's gotten away from them all, he's on a high mountain pass, and he's wondering what's going to happen next. The road kept on getting to somewhere in the sense that it got to more and more trees, all dark and dripping and to colder and colder air, and strange icy winds kept blowing the mist past him, though they never blew it away. If he'd been used to mountain country, he would have realized that this meant he was now very high up, perhaps right at the top of the pass. But Shasta knew nothing about mountains. I do think, said Shasta, that I must be the most unfortunate boy that ever lived in the whole world. Everything goes right for everyone except me. Those Narnian lords and ladies got safe away from Tashban. I was left behind. Erebus and Bree and Wyn are all as snug as anything with that old hermit. Of course, I was the one who was sent on. King Loon and his people must have got safely into the castle and shut the gates long before Rabidash arrived, but I get left out. And see if you can't identify with this line. And being very tired and having nothing inside him, he felt so sorry for himself that the tears rolled down his cheeks. What put a stop to all this was a sudden fright. Shasta discovered that someone or somebody was walking beside him. It was pitch dark, and he could see nothing, and the thing or person was going so quietly that he could hardly hear any footfalls. What he could hear was breathing. His invisible companion seemed to breathe on a very large scale, and Shasta got the impression that it was a very large creature, and he had come to notice this breathing so gradually that he had really no idea how long it had been there. It was a horrible shock. It darted into his mind that he had heard long ago that there were giants in these northern countries. He bit his lip in terror, but now that he really had something to cry about, he stopped crying. The thing, unless it was a person, went on beside him so very quietly that Shasta began to hope he had only imagined it, but just as he was becoming quite sure of it, there suddenly came a deep, rich sigh out of the darkness beside him. That couldn't be imagination. Anyway, he had felt the hot breath of that sigh on his chilly left hand. If the horse had been any good, or if he'd known how to get any good out of the horse, he would have risked everything on a breakaway, on a wild gallop, but he knew he couldn't make that horse gallop. So he went on walking at a pace, and the unseen companion walked and breathed beside him. At last he could bear it no longer. Who are you? He said scarcely above a whisper. The one who has waited long for you to speak, said the thing, its voice was not loud, but very large and deep. Are, are you a giant? asked Shasta. You might call me a giant, said the large voice, but I'm not like the creatures you call giants. I, I can't see you at all, said Shasta, after staring very hard. Then, for an even more terrible idea, had come into his head. He said, almost in a scream, you're, you're, not, you're not something dead, are you? Oh, please, please do go away. What harm have I ever done you? Oh, I'm the unluckiest person in the whole world. Once more he felt the warm breath of the thing on his hand and face. There, it said, that is not the breath of a ghost. Tell me your sorrows. Well, Shasta was a little reassured by the breath, so he told how he had never known his real father or mother, how he had been brought up sternly by the fishermen, and then he told the story of his escape and how they were chased by lions and forced to swim for their lives and of all their dangers and and about his night among the tombs and how the beasts howled at him out of the desert, and he told about the heat and thirst of their desert journey and how they were almost at their goal, when another lion chased them and wounded Erebus, and also how very long it was since he had anything to eat. I do not call you unfortunate, said the large voice. I mean, don't you think it was bad luck to meet so many lions? said Shasta. There was only one lion, said the voice. What on earth do you mean? I just told you there were at least two the first night. There was only one. But he was swift of foot. How do you know? I was the lion. And as Shasta gaped with open mouth and said nothing, the voice continued, I was the lion who forced you to join with Aravis. I was the cat who comforted you among the houses of the dead. I was the lion who drove the jackals from you while you slept. I was the lion who gave the horses the new strength of fear for the last mile so you should reach King in time. And I was the lion you do not remember who pushed the boat in which you lay, a child near death, so that it might come to a shore where a man sat wakeful at midnight to receive you. It was you. It was I. Who are you? asked Shasta. Myself, said the voice very deep and low so that the earth shook. And again, myself, loud and clear and gay. And then the third time, myself. So softly you could hardly hear it, and yet it seemed to come from all around you as if the leaves rustled with it. And Shasta was no longer afraid that the voice belonged to something that would eat him but a new and different sort of trembling came over him and he felt glad too. And as the mist parted, he saw the lion. The lion who had been with him at every turn of his life, at every moment of his life. You are such a Foolish people. You find it so hard to believe all the prophets wrote in the scriptures. My passion for this school, my passion for my work, is that your hearts would burn as you learn the scriptures. That you would know the story, the big story. and That you'd find your stories in it. That you would be able to face and live and think and feel as men and women who know the God who makes all things, from whom all things come and to whom all things must go. God, all in all. Know His Word. Live by His Word. Father, thank you for a day in which we are forced, perhaps in ways we would not normally have done, to understand what it all means. Oh, there's so little we understand, but we do know this, that in you are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And so, Father, teach us as we wrestle to know the Word of God deeply and thoughtfully in Jesus' name and for His sake. Amen. You're all dismissed.